Our Father and our God, we are people who have been purchased and bought with a price. We have come because we are owned. We are bond slaves of the living Christ and find that we have found freedom in becoming a slave. We used to be a slave of something else, and now we're a slave of the one who sets hearts and souls free, the great liberator of men, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. We, we come to praise him and worship him and pray that at the end of this hour spent together, that you will have heard something that's a sweet, sweet sound emanating from the hearts and souls of your people. Might they be able to find themselves drawn so irresistibly into the presence of the living God and leave here as changed people. Father, ready us to meet you in this sacrament in, a, in just a few minutes. Remind us of all that you've done so that we can be all who we are. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Now, you follow as I read from Romans chapter 7 at verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. I, I suppose that some of my fondest memories in the ministry come from weddings that I have done, and I have indeed done my share. I, I've married some of you. Um, but I, I must make a confession uh, that the bride and the groom were uh, not the only ones that weren't listening uh, to what I was saying in the wedding ceremony. Apparently, neither was I. Uh, now, we all know that the bride and the groom aren't listening. Uh, their minds are elsewhere. But apparently, I wasn't listening either because um, every wedding that I do, I mention the heavenly bridegroom and the earthly bride. But I must say to you that it wasn't until Vienna, it wasn't until Vienna where this metaphor of Jesus being the husband of his people overcame me. I uh, had taken Gracie and Megan and, and Susie to Vienna. We had traveled by train to Vienna and they uh, hit Stefan Plotz, if you've ever been to Vienna, um, this little shopping area that's at the center of town, they hit it running. And so I, I was by myself, seated, I'd like some sympathy here, I was by myself, seated in a McDonald's, uh, drinking a cappuccino and studying Romans 7 while my wife and two girls were out just raiding uh, every store they could find. And it was there, ladies and gentlemen, that this metaphor of 
the bride of Christ, struck me. I was so overcome by it that I changed my whole preaching schedule while in Budapest. Um, I had all those 12 weeks planned out, but I changed that whole plan because it was, it was necessary that I'd be able to share this with somebody. And, uh, and I've been waiting until September to share it with you. The whole picture of us being the bride of Christ. Now, since I've been back, I've stumbled across it several times in the scriptures. And because I don't think, I think I'm right in this, I don't think it is a particularly familiar image on the parts of the people of God. And because I think the metaphor, the images contained in it, are so vital to the, to the health of the Christian soul, I wanted to spend another week on it with you. And what I want to do is just track down some other places for you where this whole imagery of uh, Jesus being the bride of, uh, or being the bridegroom to the bride, of course, the church, that being me and you. I wanted you to see that all throughout the scriptures. So uh, if you can keep up with me, I'd like to show you five other places where this, this marvelous metaphor is used and the import that is contained in each one of those five. Let's do that rather hurriedly. The first one I draw your attention to is one that's very famous and familiar. It's found in Ephesians chapter 5. It is the passage, the great passage on marriage where women are told to submit and men are told to love. But after all that, I'm focusing or I want to focus you on uh, verses 30, 31, and 32 of Ephesians 5. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Now listen to this language of verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Is that familiar? Of course it is. You know where that came from. That's, that's the whole image of a husband and a wife coming together and leaving his father and the leave and the cleave and the one fleshness. That's, but notice what is said in the next verse. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Gang, this language that we normally use to describe marriage and the intimacy contained therein, Paul says in verse 32, he's not talking about marriage. He's talking about the church. He's talking about the bridegroom with his bride. And the intimacy that is enjoyed in the relationship that Jesus Christ has to his people. That's the first one. Here's the second one. It's in Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter 54. Let me read you two verses. Verses 4 and 5. Isaiah 54, 4 and 5. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. Why? Because your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Gangs, my dealings with shame... My dealings with guilt and the guilt of my past life is vanquished by my new relationship with God. And what is that relationship likened unto? Your God, your maker, is 
your husband. My brother and sister in Christ, listen. Shame that some of you carry around day after day after day need not be yours. Why? Because of the sterling character of my husband. That's why. Guilt be gone. Shame never. Not as long as I'm married to my husband. Here's my third one. This one is a bit more familiar. It's back in the New Testament. It's in the book of Revelation. You know, as the book closes out, even the whole Bible is about to be closed. It's in chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 and 10. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Now, here's the first thing that's important. Number one, notice who says that. Angels. That comes out of the mouth of angels. And if you will read on, and we don't have time, but if you'll notice in verses 10 and following, you get a description of the bride. Who is she? Well, first of all, we're told in verse 10 that it's the holy Jerusalem descending out of the heaven from God. Then in verses 11 through 21, you get a description of this holy, this new holy city. It, uh, it has no temple in it. Uh, it has no sun in it. There's no moon in it. Verse 23. There's no need for those things. But then in verse 24, you get a definitive description of who the angels have in mind. Verse 24, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. If there's any doubt in your mind, look at verse 27. But there shall be no, there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Who is that? That would be us, ladies and gentlemen. Now back to verse 9. The angels look at the people of God and he says to John, May I introduce to you the Lamb's wife? Can I introduce to you the bride? Here they are. Here they are. All of those people that believe, that's who, that's who the, the lamb married. Ladies and gentlemen, does that language jar you? It does me. In fact, it, it really, it really blows me away. You know, in my weddings, the last thing I do, and I try to do it very dramatically, but I'm not a very dramatic person, as you all know. But uh, at the close of my weddings, you know, I'm standing up here and it's the bride and the groom. And I turn them around and I say in the deepest voice I can muster, I say, may I be the first to introduce to you a new home, a new family, a new, a brand new institution, Mr. and Mrs. Da, 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 da. Well, ladies and gentlemen, may I be the first to introduce you as the bride. The lamb's wife. That would be you. Stand up and take a bow. That's you. You know, related to that, do you remember all of those parables in the New Testament about the wedding feast of the lamb? Do you remember those? Matthew 25, Matthew 21, I think. 
There's several of them. Uh, Revelation 19, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Ladies and gentlemen, what is it that's being celebrated there? It's the bride. Do you know why these things are such festive occasions? Because the Lamb has procured His bride. All that celebration that's going on is over me. Here's my fourth one. It's found in the book of Ruth. Everybody seems to know a little bit about the book of Ruth. You know that, by the way, Ruth is right after Judges and right before 1 Samuel. Um, uh, everybody knows Ruth is the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Her husband died. Uh, her husband was Naomi's son. And everybody seems to know that Ruth, her name, ends up in the genealogy of Christ. And that her son was a guy by the name of Obed. And Obed was the grandfather of David. Everybody seems to know that. But that's not the charm of the story, ladies and gentlemen. That's not the charm of the story, I assure you. I want you to look with me, if you've got it, in, at Ruth. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. So she, that is Ruth, fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, that would be Boaz, Why have I found favor in your eyes? That you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner. She's a Moabite. You know who, who ought to say that? Us. We ought to say that. We bow down before this Boaz of ours and we say, how is it? How? I am, I am overcome by the fact that I have found favor in your eyes. How could I possibly find favor in your eyes since I'm such a blasted foreigner? Ruth is overcome that this man Boaz would marry her. Look at uh, chapter, um, chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, um, particularly verse 20. Then Naomi, that's her mother-in-law, said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Now the translations vary. The ones that are in your lap, well, they'll vary. But the Hebrew word is the term goel. It is the normal, everyday, commonly used word for Redeemer, And I bet you, if you'll look in your margins, you'll find the word, it's in mine, you'll find that the word that's translated close relative is the word Redeemer. Boaz is called a Redeemer. And interestingly enough, this whole transaction, well, before we get to that, look at verse 18. No, no yeah, in verse, chapter 3, 18. Then she said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Ruth is so excited by the prospect that this man would marry her. She's beside herself. Sit still. She, you've seen that. You've got him in your back seat every, you know, every time you drive by car. You know, the little bottoms that are, she's just, she can't sit still. You mean to tell me? That Boaz is going to marry me? And then, um, if you'll notice in 3, hold on. Oh, no, in chapter 4, verse 4, it's called a redemption. Uh, last couple lines in verse 4. Um, and I am next to you. And he said, I will redeem it. That is, what Boaz does for Ruth is called a redemption. 
And he is called a redeemer. And then one other statement in, in, in 414. All the ladies gather around. Uh, then the women said to Naomi, verse, this is 414. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, a redeemer. And may his name be famous in Israel. Blessed be God that a redeemer came forth to marry you. Yeah. Blessed be God. How is it that this redeemer would would give me the time of day? Ladies and gentlemen, if it is a stretch for Boaz to marry Ruth, what do you think angels thought when they found out who Jesus married? He married a bunch of foreigners. He married a bunch of outsiders. And the outsiders are so blessed and excited about it, they can hardly sit still to think that the man would marry us. I got one more, and it's my favorite. It comes out of a book that's all about marriage. Actually, it's all about a bad marriage. Um, it's in the minor prophets, and those minor prophets are in that section where everything's hard to find. But if you can find Daniel, it's the next book. It's in the book, book of Hosea. You know the story, I think. Let me tell you real quick. God comes to the prophet uh, Hosea, and he says, Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute. And her name is Gomer. Now, I love to say this, but uh, anybody who would marry someone with the name of Gomer is asking for trouble. But um, he is t- instructed to go marry a prostitute, which is should turn you on your ear. But it goes downhill from there. Uh, he does. That is, Hosea goes out and marries Gomer. But Gomer refuses to live within the boundaries of marital fidelity. That is, she sleeps around a lot. A whole lot. So much, in fact, that she has to be bought off of the slave block. Now, here's the point, guys. God uses that whole disastrous relationship of Hosea and Gomer as a picture of his relationship to Israel. Israel is his bride. He is her husband. And Israel is being just as adulterous, just as prostitutive as is Gomer. Now, in the midst of this unfolding disaster, there is a statement made in here, ladies and gentlemen, that should absolutely take your breath away. It's in Hosea chapter 2. Let me read it. Verses 14 and 15. Well, um, yes, 14, 15, 16. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. That's key. And the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master, for I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals. Now, guys, that Valley of Acor thing is big, very important. Listen real quickly as I try to explain it. Um, the Valley of Acor is a geographical location that came into prominence during the headship of Joshua. You see, are you with me? 
uh, hundreds of years earlier, during Joshua's tenure, the Valley of Achor became a prominent place. Do you know what took place in the Valley of Achor? Let me tell you. Do you remember right after Israel has had this glorious military victory over Jericho? Their next battle is against the Aites, and the Aites set them to rout. That is, this tiny little, they, they defeat this big hairy guy, but this little bitty fellow, the Aites, just kill them all. Well, kill 32, I think. And, and Israel turns to run. And all of Israel is just feeling terrible about it. What's happening? And there's a scene in, um, in the chapter 7, I think, where Joshua cries out and says, God, what's gone wrong here? What, what's going on? And God says, Joshua, get up from there. You got sin in your camp. Now go deal with the sin. Now, ladies and gentlemen, understand this. There was a man in Joshua's army by the name of Achan. And Achan had stolen some things that day that he wasn't supposed to have. They had been given specific detailed instructions not to take anything from Jericho. But he did. Now, he wasn't the only sinner in Israel that day. But he was the most grievous offender. He was the big sinner. He was the notorious sinner. And once he is found out, here's what happens. To remove this divine curse that existed all over Israel. Their, their armies were defeated. They were, no, they were, they were going the wrong. But, but to remove that curse, that blight over the whole nation, one man had to die. So the one died in the place of the many. And you know where they stoned him at? In a place called the Valley of Achor. Now, pick that up and carry it over to the book of Hosea. Where God says, in the Valley of Achor, there will be a door of hope. The Valley of Achor in the book of Joshua points not to a valley, it points to a hill. And on that hill, there will be, there will, a day will come when once again, the one will die for the many. Now this one is going to be vastly different from Achan because he will have no sin of his own. But what he will do is, by giving his sinless self in the place of a sinful bunch, is that he will open for them a door of hope. In the place where the one died for the many, you know, on that hill far away where stood an old rugged cross. In that place where the one dies for the many, a door of grace, a door of hope swings open. And we're told in the book of Hosea. That she, she will sing and it will be in that day that she will come to that door of hope. She will walk through it and on the other side she will find her husband. In the place where the one dies for the many, a door of hope opens wide. 
and an adulterous bunch of people walk through the door into the open and awaiting arms of the heavenly bridegroom. And their shame is to be mentioned no more. Now, guys, why is all that important? I mean, why is it? Why have I spent this 30 minutes trying to make sure that you get this metaphor squarely in the front of your soul? Because, ladies and gentlemen, do you know what the metaphor communicates? Well, if, if I just to draw from the passages, the five that I used, it communicates no shame. It communicates intimacy and relationship and union. It, it communicates excitement and celebration. It communicates hope. It communicates security and safety and permanence. This metaphor communicates, ladies and gentlemen, that if you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are shameless. That is, less any shame. You are valued. You are adored. You are loved. You are included. The foreigner left on the outside has been brought into the inside. Because of all that, ladies and gentlemen, because we are married to another. All of those things that seem to plague the people of God need not plague you. The shame of your past. Go back and read Isaiah 54, ladies and gentlemen. The shame of your past. Nope. Nope, it's been vanquished. Because I am married to another. Again, one of my heroes is a guy by the name of Luther, Martin Luther. And Martin Luther said, I would run into the, into the arms of Christ even if he had a sword in his hand. Run, ladies and gentlemen. Sword or no sword. Run into his arms because he's our heavenly bridegroom. The good news of the gospel is not that you're saved from sin. That is good news, but that's not the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that we are married to another. May I be the first to introduce to you the bride, the lamb's wife, that would be you. Our Father, we do thank you for the glorious pictures that are contained in the scriptures that we hope will hearten the souls of your people and that they will drink deeply from it and draw fresh supplies of grace by their so doing. And now, Father, we ask that you will meet us at this table and remind us there that it is the bride that is coming to the table of the Lamb. 
whose broken body and shed blood is there for us. Remind us again who we are, Father. We ask it in Jesus' name.